0: Part Second, Chapter Eight, Part One of Nostromo. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Scott Carpenter. Nostromo by Joseph Conrad. Part Second, The Isabels. Chapter Eight, Part One. For a moment, before this extraordinary find, they forgot their own concerns and sensations. Senor Hirsch's sensations as he lay there must have been those of extreme terror. For a long time he refused to give a sign of life, till at last Decoud's objurgations, and perhaps more Nostromo's impatient suggestion that he should be thrown overboard, as he seemed to be dead, induced him to raise one eyelid first and then the other. It appeared that he had never found a safe opportunity to leave Sulaco, he lodged with Anzani, the universal storekeeper, on the Plaza Mayor. But when the riot broke out he had made his escape from his host's house before daylight, and in such a hurry that he had forgotten to put on his shoes. He had run out impulsively in his socks, and with his hat in his hand, into the garden of Anzani's house. Fear gave him the necessary agility to climb over several low walls, and afterwards he blundered into the overgrown cloisters of the ruined Franciscan convent in one of the by-streets. He forced himself into the midst of matted bushes with the recklessness of desperation, and this accounted for his scratched body and his torn clothing. He lay hidden there all day, his tongue cleaving to the roof of his mouth, with all the intensity of thirst engendered by heat and fear. Three times different bands of men invaded the place with shouts and imprecations, looking for Father Corbelan. but towards the end of the evening, still lying on his face in the bushes, he thought he would die from the fear of silence. He was not very clear as to what had induced him to leave the place, but evidently he had got out and slunk successfully out of town along the deserted back lanes. He wandered in the darkness near the railway, so maddened with apprehension that he dared not even approach the fires of the pickets of Italian workmen guarding the line. He had a vague idea, evidently, of finding refuge in the railway yards. But the dogs rushed in upon him barking. Men began to shout. A shot was fired at random. He fled away from the gates. By the merest accident as it happened, he took the direction of the OSN Company's offices. Twice he stumbled upon the bodies of men killed during the day. But everything living frightened him much more. He crouched, crept, crawled, made dashes, guided by a sort of animal instinct, keeping away from every light and from every sound of voices. His idea was to throw himself at the feet of Captain Mitchell and beg for shelter in the Company's offices. It was all dark there as he approached on his hands and knees but suddenly someone on guard challenged loudly, "'Qui en vive!' There were more dead men lying about, and he flattened himself down at once by the side of a cold corpse. He heard a voice saying, "'Here is one of those wounded rascals crawling about. Shall I go and finish him?' And another voice objected that it was not safe to go out without a lantern upon such an errand. Perhaps it was only some negro liberal looking for a chance to stick a knife into the stomach of an honest man. Hirsch didn't stay to hear any more but crawling away to the end of the wharf hid himself amongst a lot of empty casks. After a while some people came along, talking, and with glowing cigarettes. He did not stop to ask himself whether they would be likely to do him any harm, but bolted incontinently along the jetty, saw a lighter lying moored at the end, and threw himself into it. In his desire to find cover he crept right forward under the half-deck, and he had remained there, more dead than alive, suffering agonies of hunger and thirst, and almost fainting with terror when he heard numerous footsteps and the voices of the Europeans who came in a body escorting the wagon-load of treasure pushed along the rails by a squad of cargadores. He understood perfectly what was being done from the talk, but did not disclose his presence from the fear that he would not be allowed to remain. His only idea at the time, overpowering and masterful, was to get away from this terrible Sulaco. And now he regretted it very much. He had heard Nostromo talk to Decoud and wished himself back on shore. He did not desire to be involved in any desperate affair in a situation where one could not run away. The involuntary groans of his anguished spirit had betrayed him to the sharp ears of the capataz. They had propped him up in a sitting posture against the side of the lighter, and he went on with the moaning account of his adventures till his voice broke, his head fell forward. "'Water!' he whispered with difficulty. Decoud held one of the cans to his lips. He revived after an extraordinarily short time and scrambled up to his feet wildly. Nostromo, in an angry and threatening voice, ordered him forward. Hirsch was one of those men whom fear lashes like a whip, and he must have had an appalling idea of the capataz's ferocity. He displayed an extraordinary agility in disappearing forward into the darkness. They heard him getting over the tarpaulin, then there was the sound of a heavy fall, followed by a weary sigh. Afterwards, All was still in the forepart of the lighter, as though he had killed himself in his headlong tumble. Nostromo shouted in a menacing voice, "'Lie still there! Do not move a limb! If I hear as much as a loud breath from you, I shall come over there and put a bullet through your head!' The mere presence of a coward, however passive, brings an element of treachery into a dangerous situation. Nostromo's nervous impatience passed into gloomy thoughtfulness, decoud in an undertone as if speaking to himself— remarked that, after all, this bizarre event made no great difference. He could not conceive what harm the man could do. At most he would be in the way, like an inanimate and useless object, like a block of wood, for instance. "'I would think twice before getting rid of a piece of wood,' said Nostromo calmly. "'Something may happen unexpectedly where you could make use of it, but in an affair like ours a man like this ought to be thrown overboard. Even if he were as brave as a lion, we would not want him here.' "'We are not running away for our lives. "'Señor, there is no harm in a brave man trying to save himself with ingenuity and courage. "'But you have heard his tale, Martín. "'His being here is a miracle of fear,' Nostromo paused. "'There is no room for fear in this lighter,' he added through his teeth. Decoud had no answer to make. "'It was not a position for argument, for a display of scruples or feelings. "'There were a thousand ways in which a panic-stricken man could make himself dangerous.' It was evident that Hirsch could not be spoken to, reasoned with, or persuaded, into a rational line of conduct. The story of his own escape demonstrated that clearly enough. Decoud thought it was a thousand pities the wretch had not died of fright. Nature who had made him what he was seemed to have calculated cruelly how much he could bear in the way of atrocious anguish without actually expiring. Some compassion was due to so much terror decoud though imaginative enough for sympathy resolved not to interfere with any action that nostromo would take but nostromo did nothing and the fate of senor hirsch remained suspended in the darkness of the gulf at the mercy of events which could not be foreseen the capataz extending his hand put out the candle suddenly it was to decoud as if his companion had destroyed by a single touch the world of affairs of loves of revolution where his complacent superiority analyzed fearlessly all motives and all passions, including his own. He gasped a little. Decoud was affected by the novelty of his position. Intellectually self-confident, he suffered from being deprived of the only weapon he could use with effect. No intelligence could penetrate the darkness of the placid gulf. There remained only one thing he was certain of, and that was the overweening vanity of his companion. It was direct, uncomplicated, naive, and effectual. Decoud, who had been making use of him, had tried to understand his man thoroughly. He had discovered a complete singleness of motive behind the varied manifestations of a consistent character. This was why the man remained so astonishingly simple in the jealous greatness of his conceit. And now there was a complication. It was evident that he resented having been given a task in which there were so many chances of failure. I wonder, thought Decoud, how he would behave if I were not here. He heard Nostromo mutter again. No, there is no room for fear on this lighter. Courage itself does not seem good enough. I have a good eye and a steady hand. No man can say he ever saw me tired or uncertain what to do. But por Dios, Don Martín, I have been sent out into this black calm on a business where neither a good eye nor a steady hand nor judgment are any use. He swore a string of oaths in Spanish and Italian under his breath. Nothing but sheer desperation will do for this affair. These words were in strange contrast to the prevailing peace to this almost solid stillness of the gulf. A shower fell with an abrupt whispering sound all round the boat, and Découd took off his hat, and letting his head get wet felt greatly refreshed. Presently a steady little draught of air caressed his cheek. The lighter began to move, but the shower distanced it. The drops ceased to fall upon his head and hands. The whispering died out in the distance. Nostromo emitted a grunt of satisfaction, and grasping the tiller, chirruped softly as sailors do to encourage the wind. Never for the last three days had Decoud felt less the need for what the capataz would call desperation. "'I fancy I hear another shower on the water,' he observed in a tone of quiet content. "'I hope it will catch us up.' Nostromo ceased chirping at once. "'You hear another shower,' he said doubtfully. A sort of thinning of the darkness seemed to have taken place, and Decoud could see now the outline of his companion's figure, and even the sail came out of the night like a square block of dense snow. The sound which Decoud had detected came along the water harshly. Nostromo recognized that noise, partaking of a hiss and a rustle, which spreads out on all sides of a steamer making her way through a smooth water on a quiet night. It could be nothing else but the captured transport with troops from Esmeralda, she carried no lights. The noise of her steaming, growing louder every minute, would stop at times altogether and then begin again abruptly, and sound startlingly nearer, as if that invisible vessel whose position could not be precisely guessed were making straight for the lighter. Meantime that last kept on sailing slowly and noiselessly before a breeze so faint that it was only by leaning over the side and feeling the water slip through his fingers that Decoud convinced himself they were moving at all. His drowsy feeling had departed, He was glad to know that the lighter was moving. After so much stillness, the noise of the steamer seemed uproarious and distracting. There was a weirdness in not being able to see her. Suddenly all was still. She had stopped, but so close to them that the steam blowing off sent its rumbling vibration right over their heads. They are trying to make out where they are, said Decoud in a whisper. Again he leaned over and put his fingers into the water. We are moving quite smartly he informed Nostromo. "'We seem to be crossing her bows," said the capataz in a cautious tone. "'But this is a blind game with death. Moving on is of no use. We mustn't be seen or heard.' His whisper was hoarse with excitement. Of all his face there was nothing visible but a gleam of white eyeballs. His fingers gripped Decoud's shoulder. "'That is the only way to save this treasure from this steamer full of soldiers.' any other would have carried lights but you observe there is not a gleam to show us where she is decoud stood as if paralyzed only his thoughts were wildly active in the space of a second he remembered the desolate glance of antonia as he left her at the bedside of her father in the gloomy house of avellanos with shuttered windows but all the doors standing open and deserted by all the servants except an old negro at the gate he remembered the casaguld on his last visit the arguments the tones of his voice the impenetrable attitude of Charles, Mrs. Gould's face so blanched with anxiety and fatigue that her eyes seemed to have changed color, appearing nearly black by contrast. Even whole sentences of the proclamation which he meant to make Barrios issue from his headquarters at Kaita as soon as he got there, passed through his mind. The very germ of the new state, the separationist proclamation, which he had tried before he left to read hurriedly to Don Jose, stretching out on his bed under the fixed gaze of his daughter. God knows whether the old statesman had understood it. He was unable to speak, but he had certainly lifted his arm off the coverlet. His hand had moved as if to make the sign of the cross in the air, a gesture of blessing, of consent. Découd had that very draft in his pocket, written in pencil on several loose sheets of paper with the heavily printed heading Administration of the Santome Silver Mine, Sulaco, Republic of Costaguana. He had written it furiously, snatching page after page on Charles Gould's table, Mrs. Gould had looked several times over his shoulder as he wrote, but the senor administrador, standing straddle-legged, would not even glance at it when it was finished. He had waved it away firmly. It must have been scorn and not caution, since he never made a remark about the use of the administration's paper for such a compromising document. And that showed his disdain, the true English disdain of common prudence, as if everything outside the range of their own thoughts and feelings were unworthy of serious recognition. Decoud had the time in a second or two to become furiously angry with Charles Gould and even resentful against Mrs. Gould, in whose care, tacitly it is true, he had left the safety of Antonia. "'Better perish a thousand times than owe your preservation to such people,' he exclaimed mentally. The grip of Nostromo's fingers, never removed from his shoulder, tightening fiercely, recalled him to himself. "'The darkness is our friend,' the capataz murmured into his ear. "'I am going to lower the sail and trust our escape to this black gulf.' no eyes could make us out lying silent with a naked mast i will do it now before this steamer closes still more upon us the faint creak of a block would betray us and the santome treasure into the hands of those thieves he moved about as warily as a cat decoud heard no sound and it was only by the disappearance of the square blotch of darkness that he knew the yard had come down lowered as carefully as if it had been made of glass next moment he heard nostromo's quiet breathing by his side you had better not move at all from where you are, Don Martin, advised the capataz earnestly. You might stumble or displace something which would make a noise. The sweeps and the punting poles are lying about. Move not for your life. Por Dios, Don Martin. he went on in a keen but friendly whisper. I am so desperate that, if I didn't know your worship to be a man of courage, capable of standing stock still, whatever happens, I would drive my knife into your heart. A death-like stillness surrounded the lighter. It was difficult to believe that there was near a steamer full of men with many pairs of eyes peering from her bridge for some hint of land in the night. Her steam had ceased blowing off, and she remained stopped too far off, apparently for any other sound to reach the lighter. Perhaps you would the capataz decoud began in a whisper, however, you need not trouble. there are other things than the fear of your knife to keep my heart steady. It shall not betray you. Only have you forgotten. "'I spoke to you openly as to a man as desperate as myself,' explained the capataz. "'The silver must be saved from the Monteris. I told Captain Mitchell three times that I preferred to go alone. I told Don Corros Gould, too, I was in the Casa Gould. They had sent for me. The ladies were there, and when I tried to explain why I did not wish to have you with me, they promised me, both of them, great rewards for your safety. A strange way to talk to a man you are sending out to an almost certain death.' "'Those gentle folk do not seem to have sense enough "'to understand what they are giving one to do. "'I told them I could do nothing for you. "'You would have been safer with the bandit Hernández. "'It would have been possible to ride out of the town "'with no greater risk than a chance shot "'sent after you in the dark. "'But it was as if they had been deaf. "'I had to promise I would wait for you under the harbour gate. "'I did wait. "'And now because you are a brave man "'you are as safe as the silver. "'Neither more nor less.' At that moment, as if by way of comment upon Nostromo's words, the invisible steamer went ahead at half-speed only, as could be judged by the leisurely beat of her propeller. The sound shifted its place markedly, but without coming nearer. It even grew a little more distant right a beam of the lighter, and then ceased again. They are trying for a sight of the Isabels, muttered Nostromo, in order to make for the harbour in a straight line and seize the custom-house, with the treasure in it. Have you ever seen the Commandant of Esmeralda Sotillo, a handsome fellow with a soft voice? When I first came here I used to see him in the calle, talking to the senoritas at the windows of the houses, and showing his white teeth all the time. But one of my cargadores who had been a soldier told me that he had once ordered a man to be flayed alive in the Romuald Campo where he was sent recruiting amongst the people of the Estancias. It has never entered his head that the Compania had a man capable of baffling his game. The murmuring loquacity of the capataz disturbed Decoud like a hint of weakness, and yet talkative resolution may be as genuine as grim silence. Sotillo is not baffled so far, he said. Have you forgotten that crazy man forward? Nostromo had not forgotten Senor Hirsch. He reproached himself bitterly for not having visited the lighter carefully before leaving the wharf. He reproached himself for not having stabbed and flung Hirsch overboard at the very moment of discovery without even looking at his face. That would have been consistent with the desperate character of the affair. Whatever happened, Sotillo was already baffled. Even if that wretch, now as silent as death, did anything to betray the nearness of the lighter, Sotillo, if Sotillo it was, in command of the troops on board, would still be baffled of his plunder. I have an axe in my hand, Nostromo whispered wrathfully, that in three strokes would cut through the side down to the water's edge. Moreover, each lighter has a plug in the stern, and I know exactly where it is. I feel it under the sole of my foot. Decoud recognized the ring of genuine determination in the nervous murmurs, the vindictive excitement of the famous capataz. Before the steamer, guided by a shriek or two, for there could be no more than that, Nostromo said, gnashing his teeth audibly, could find the lighter, there would be plenty of time to sink this treasure tied up round his neck. The last words he hissed into Decoud's ear. Decoud said nothing he was perfectly convinced the usual characteristic quietness of the man was gone it was not equal to the situation as he conceived it something deeper something unsuspected by everyone had come to the surface decoud with careful movements slipped off his overcoat and divested himself of his boots he did not consider himself bound in honour to sink with the treasure his object was to get down to barrios and kaita as the capataz knew very well and he too meant in his own way to put into that attempt all the desperation of which he was capable. Nostromo muttered, True, true, you are a politician, senor. Rejoin the army and start another revolution. He pointed out, however, that there was a little boat belonging to every lighter fit to carry two men, if not more. Theirs was towing behind. Of that, Decoud had not been aware. Of course it was too dark to see, and it was only when Nostromo put his hand upon its painter fastened to a cleat in the stern that he experienced a full measure of relief. The prospect of finding himself in the water and swimming, overwhelmed by ignorance and darkness, probably in a circle, till he sank from exhaustion was revolting. The barren and cruel futility of such an end intimidated his affectation of careless pessimism. In comparison to it, the chance of being left floating in a boat, exposed to thirst, hunger, discovery, imprisonment, execution, presented itself with an aspect of amenity worth securing... "'even at the cost of some self-contempt. "'He did not accept Nostromo's proposal "'that he should get into the boat at once. "'Something sudden may overwhelm us, senor,' "'the capataz remarked, promising faithfully at the same time "'to let go the painter at the moment when the necessity became manifest. "'But Decoud assured him lightly "'that he did not mean to take the boat till the very last moment, "'and that then he meant the capataz to come along too. "'The darkness of the gulf was no longer for him the end of all things.' It was part of a living world, since, pervading it, failure and death could be felt at your elbow. And at the same time it was a shelter. He exulted in its impenetrable obscurity. Like a wall, like a wall, he muttered to himself. The only thing which checked his confidence was the thought of Senor Hirsch. Not to have bound and gagged him seemed to decoud now the height of improvident folly. As long as the miserable creature had the power to raise a yell, he was a constant danger. His abject terror was mute now, but there was no saying from what cause it might suddenly find vent in shrieks. This very madness of fear which both Descoud and Nostromo had seen in the wild and irrational glances, and in the continuous twitchings of his mouth, protected Senor Hirsch from the cruel necessities of this desperate affair. The moment of silencing him forever had passed. As Nostromo remarked, in answer to Decoud's regrets, it was too late. It could not be done without noise, especially in the ignorance of the man's exact position. Wherever he had elected to crouch and tremble, it was too hazardous to go near him. He would begin probably to yell for mercy. It was much better to leave him quite alone, since he was keeping so still. But to trust to his silence became every moment a greater strain upon Decoud's composure. I wish, Capatas, you had not let the right moment pass. "'He murmured. "'What, to silence him forever? "'I thought it good to hear first how he came to be here. "'It was too strange. "'Who could imagine that it was all an accident? Afterwards, senor, when I saw you giving him water to drink, "'I could not do it. "'Not after I had seen you holding up the can to his lips "'as though he were your brother, senor. "'That sort of necessity must not be thought of too long. "'And yet it would have been no cruelty "'to take away from him his wretched life. "'It is nothing but fear.' Your compassion saved him then, Martin, and now it is too late. It couldn't be done without noise. In the steamer they were keeping a perfect silence, and the stillness was so profound that Decoud felt as if the slightest sound conceivable must travel unchecked and audible to the end of the world. What if Hirsch coughed or sneezed? To feel himself at the mercy of such an idiotic contingency was too exasperating to be looked upon with irony. Nostromo, too, seemed to be getting restless. Was it possible, he asked himself, that the steamer, finding the night too dark altogether, intended to remain stopped where she was till daylight? He began to think that this, after all, was the real danger. He was afraid that the darkness, which was his protection, would in the end cause his undoing. Sotillo, as Nostromo had surmised, was in command on board the transport. The events of the last forty-eight hours in Sulaco were not known to him, Neither was he aware that the telegraphist in Esmeralda had managed to warn his colleague in Sulaco. Like a good many officers of the troops garrisoning the province, Sotillo had been influenced in his adoption of the Ribierist cause by the belief that it had the enormous wealth of the Gould concession on its side. He had been one of the frequenters of the Casa Gould, where he had aired his Blanco convictions and his ardor for reform before Don Jose Avellanos, casting frank, honest glances toward Mrs. Gould and Antonia the while. He was known to belong to a good family, persecuted and impoverished during the tyranny of Guzman Bento. The opinions he expressed appeared eminently natural and proper in a man of his parentage and antecedents. And he was not a deceiver. It was perfectly natural for him to express elevated sentiments while his whole faculties were taken up with what seemed then a solid and practical notion. The notion that the husband of Antonia Avellanos would be, naturally, the intimate friend of the Gould concession he even pointed this out to anzani once when negotiating the sixth or seventh small loan in the gloomy damp apartment with enormous iron bars behind the principal shop in the whole row under the arcades he hinted to the universal shopkeeper at the excellent terms he was on with the emancipated senorita who was like a sister to the englishwoman he would advance one leg and put his arms akimbo posing for anzani's inspection and fixing him with a haughty stare "'Look, miserable shopkeeper, how can a man like me fail with any woman, "'let alone an emancipated girl living in scandalous freedom?' he seemed to say. "'His manner in the Casa Gould was, of course, very different, "'devoid of all truculence, and even slightly mournful. "'Like most of his countrymen, he was carried away by the sound of fine words, "'especially if uttered by himself. "'He had no convictions of any sort upon anything "'except as to the irresistible power of his personal advantages.' But that was so firm that even Decoud's appearance in Sulaco and his intimacy with the Goulds and the Avellanos did not disquiet him. On the contrary, he tried to make friends with that rich costaguanero from Europe in the hope of borrowing a large sum by and by. The only guiding motive of his life was to get money for the satisfaction of his expensive tastes, which he indulged recklessly, having no self-control. He imagined himself a master of intrigue, but his corruption was simple as an animal instinct. At times in solitude he had his moments of ferocity, and also on such occasions as, for instance, when, alone in a room with Anzani, trying to get alone, He had talked himself into the command of the Esmeralda garrison. That small seaport had its importance as the station of the main submarine cable connecting the Occidental provinces with the outer world, and the junction with it of the Sulaco branch. Don José Avellanos proposed him, and Barrios, with a rude and jeering guffaw, had said, Oh, let Sotillo go. He's a very good man to keep guard over the cable, and the ladies of Esmeralda ought to have their turn. Barrios, an indubitably brave man, had no great opinion of Sotillo. End of Chapter 8 Part 1